0: Hello and welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Tom Ledis. I'm a professor at the Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, and I'm a clinical specialist at the Stratton VA Medical Center in Albany, New York. I also serve as one of the scientific editors for pharmacotherapy. Today we are talking with doctors Melissa Johnson, Aaron McQuery, and Nathan Weiderhold about a publication topic that was generated by the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists Publication Committee titled, Utility of Triazole Antifungal Therapeutic Drug Monitoring, or TDM. This paper will be published in the October 2023 issue of Pharmacotherapy. Dr. Johnson is a clinical pharmacist with the Duke Antimicrobial Stewardship Outreach Network and is the current president of SIDP. Dr. McQuarrie is a Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine at University of Pittsburgh and is the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation. Dr. Wiederhold is Professor at University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio, Texas, and is the Director of the Fungus Testing Center. Thank you all today for joining our podcast. So first and foremost, I just wanted to commend you on developing this publication. Um, it is, I anticipate that readership um, will be keenly interested in this. This is a notable data gap for many of us. And given that we have a diverse audience on these podcasts, I think the first question is, what was the genesis for developing the triazole antifungal TDM monitoring recommendations?
1: Sure, I can take that one to start. This is Aaron McCreary. Thanks for having us, Tom, and pharmacotherapy. This started, so the SIDP Publications Committee is a wonderful team of volunteers. That's a committee we've had for about uh, probably five or 10 years in in its current format. And one of the main charges of that committee is to develop, we developed a couple of years ago what we called the insights from SIDP process, wherein we realized there was this need for these really deep dives into these very pharmacy-centric aspects of medical care, such as therapeutic drug monitoring of certain medication classes, optimal dosing strategies of certain medication classes, you know, a lot of things with antibiotic stewardship and advocacy and, and things like that. And so we have a pretty robust standardized operating procedure in partnership with pharmacotherapy and pharmacotherapy has been really amazing partners on this journey to, wherein the committee identifies topics of interest to clinicians, they then identify an expert panel of authors with expertise in this area and then let the authors kind of take it from there to write the paper over a year or sometimes two years which this one near and dear to our hearts took about two years from start to finish um, and so that's kind of the insights from SIDP process and, and where this paper came from and it was of interest to a lot of clinicians I can say personally and then I, I'd love to hear Melissa and Nathan's background from from their centers but I started my training at the University of Wisconsin with Dave Andes, who's on the paper and a fungal expert. And so he taught me everything I know about ID and and got me very interested in antifungals. But there was just a lot of work in optimizing these drugs and something that's always stood out to me. And we, during my time at Wisconsin, had just brought these tests in-house. And one of my residency projects was looking at whether that was worth it, so to speak. And so this has always been on my radar. And then, of course, when I moved to UPMC, we do have hazel therapeutic drug monitoring in-house, so we get results fast. And just seeing the difference that can make for clinicians and the impact there was why I personally was interested in this project.
2: Yeah. So Erin, in our DASA network and at Duke, we get a lot of questions about antifungal drug levels. And this is something we have been giving a lot of thought to, that it might be a little bit easier if there was, you know, a published guide for folks. And we get a lot of questions about what should the levels be, how would we adjust dosing based on a level that's drawn, and saw the need for some, some more standardized recommendations. But meanwhile, um, CDC has been working on a few projects that really emphasize the need for this as well. And this is what is kind of exciting, is that all this is coming together at the same time. There was a recent published paper in OFID, led by Caitlin Benedict and Dallas Smith, and they looked at azole-TDM from a database of over 1,000 hospitals in the U.S. and found only 50 of these actually had hospitals that had TDM data available for their analysis. And overall, in more than 2,600 patient hospitalizations that probably should have had azole-TDM performed, only about 16% of these hospitalizations did. And then in a follow-up paper, they share the results from an EIN survey that they did primarily of ID physicians who stated that they perform TDM for these azoles a majority of the time, like 70 to 90% of the time for boriconazole, posaconazole and nitriconazole. So there's likely a huge gap in what's being done in certain medical centers or centers with ID physicians and in the community hospitals. And the even more concerning thing is that when the levels are being performed, for these particular drugs, a substantial portion of the levels are outside the therapeutic range. So in the first CDC study I mentioned, about a quarter of the initial levels were subtherapeutic. And this is similar to what we see clinically and what I think Nathan has seen in his lab. He's published on this as well, and I cite those data all the time. So Nathan, what's your experience
3: with this? So yeah, we do see a lot of variability with regard to azole drug levels. Uh, so historically, it's primarily been with uh, voriconazole, uh, itraconazole, and posaconazole. Now, with voriconazole, um, you can have within the same patient, within a short period of time, a low level, one that's just right, and then one that becomes super therapeutic. Uh, and there's so many different things that it can affect voriconazole. Uh, sometimes when we get questions about You know, my patient's voriconazole level changed, but we didn't make any changes. I start asking the questions, well, did the wind shift direction? Because it seems like anything can make a change to the voriconazole level. With itraconazole, it's a little different. We typically don't see a lot of high concentrations, but we definitely see subtherapeutic concentrations, primarily due to its issues with bioavailability. Posaconazole in the past was also very problematic but then now that the uh, new formulations have been uh, around the delayed release tablet which has so much better bioavailability that has really changed now for posaconazole for the better
0: all right thank you so before we get into your specific recommendations, the question always arises: Is the juice worth the squeeze? And, and um, you know, I was on the vancomycin uh, consensus guidelines, and and more recently, um, the extended infusion beta lactams. And the, the questions clinicians always ask is, you know, is the data sufficient? for me to change my practice, to check these levels, um, to make interventions, um, particularly for those who do not have in-house assays. So clearly, a lot of PK variability, um, a lot of good preclinical PK-PD data to support you know targets to maximize efficacy. But ultimately, Erin, do you think the clinical data supports uh, your recommendations?
1: I do. And I Well, first, I want to pause and remind all of our listeners that there is a 14,000 word supplement to our paper. So when you go to the when you download this paper, it's like a nice little 3000 word with a beautiful little table. Um, And that's the main paper. But there is a 14,000 word supplement for your, you know, night bedtime story, if you're so inclined that goes into all of this literature in in greater detail. So that's where you really get the answer to this question. But since Tom's going to cut me off at 20 minutes, I'll I'll keep it short here. I think in general, TDM studies are extremely challenging. If you're going to run a prospective trial, God bless you. And if you're doing observational data, it's hopelessly confounded because especially with this space, rare fungal infections from a treatment standpoint are, are rare. And so getting robust data on any kind of efficacy correlation is going to be challenging just because the events are so rare and then when you look at observational data in this space which is most of the data if not all of it how often the levels are being checked whether they're in-house or send out whether the patient's infected or it's prophylaxis or it's kind of empiric it's it's all very 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 challenging to tease out so you could you could make the case if you wanted to be a contrarian that the clinical data aren't there, so why am I spending money on the levels? I guess my answer to that is we spend a lot of money in healthcare that we don't need to spend, and the time to try to save $100 or so is not with azoles, in my humble opinion, because you're either giving it for prophylaxis, so you have a serious indication to try to prevent something terrible from happening to the patient, or you're, you're, you think you have just cause to treat an also terrible infection, and we know that there's enough patient variability that We know with certain formulations of certain azoles, there's a strong chance your level is going to be zero, and so you at least want to prove that your patient is getting some kind of reasonable concentration for what are very very serious infections. And so I think the totality of data and of course the clinical experience of of all of us authors would lean heavily in favor of sending TDM, especially for voriconazole, itraconazole, and then if you're using the posaconazole suspension, Um, we'll get into this later, but. But as Nathan just pointed out, the new POSA DR tab for profi. okay, maybe you don't need to. Um, but there's, you know, we started to manipulate those tablets by crushing them in clinical practice. I would send levels in that case because you're, you know, you're using it, you're using it off, off label. Um, and then Flucon is, a, we'll, we'll talk about the specifics later, but I think in totality, yes, the clinical data are there.
0: Um, Aaron, I would agree. And I appreciate you and the other authors' efforts in putting together that supplement. It's extremely well done. And, and I think the argument for um, TDM is, is compelling. And I think more so than, than some of the other drugs we perform TDM regularly in practice. So Aaron, I would agree that voriconazole of, of all the triazoles is the one that merits TDM. And, and I, I would argue that this should be performed across uh, all healthcare institutions. So what are the proposed monitoring recommendations for voriconazole? And in particular, when should concentrations be measured? Is it the first dose after the first week? Um, what is the desired therapeutic range? And when we think about the therapeutic range, you know, what should we be looking at for efficacy? And when is, hot, when is too high, too high when we think about some of the drug-related exposure toxicities?
1: Sure, I'll, nothing like a loaded question, Tom. So I'll, I'll try to tease into all of those variables and then I'm gonna let Melissa and Nathan talk because I feel like I've been talking too much. So I guess first and foremost, the, the, the pharmacodynamic index of efficacy for voriconazole is, is a, a free drug 24 hour AUC to MIC ratio which is true of all azoles it's actually true of every drug that's not a beta-lactam for the most part and so this so we're looking at kind of a total exposure but fortunately for azole antifungals unlike vancomycin troughs so a single point in the dosing curve seem to correlate somewhat reasonably with your AUC exposure targets which is nice because then we can just check a trough and and move on and use that as an efficacy and safety index rather than having to do an AUC exposure like we do with with vanc right so when we're checking those trough values with vori we have both an efficacy and a safety threshold safety is kind of controversial, kind of not. A lot of us were taught 5.5, and that's something that's been carried forward. When you dig into the data of where that comes from, there are several references showing that a f- greater than a 5 to 5.5 is where you get significantly more CNS toxicity. And Vori CNS toxicity manifests as hallucinations, visual disturbances, and other things like that. It's not really a seizure, which is you know normally what we're really concerned with clinically, but this neurotoxicity is just fascinating and interesting. And You know, we also cite several publications where people are like, we didn't see any CNS toxicity. But interestingly, those were often in heme malignancy patients, which are getting all kinds of chemotherapy that can be neurotoxic. And perhaps there isn't an additive toxicity in those settings. But I think if you've seen one patient on Voriconazole that you walk in the room and they tell you they're seeing spiders on the walls and flashing lights, that's enough to know that the CNS toxicity is a real thing that absolutely happens and is is absolutely dose-dependent. One of my favorite I.D. publications ever, as a side note, is a case report of a patient who was a painter who was admitted, I think, for a hemolignancy, got voriconazole, and they had the patient like paint a landscape pre-vori and then post-vori, and the colors are completely different, and the patient thought they had painted the exact same painting. So that's like a really cool and really beautiful paper. But anyway, um, without digressing too much, we um, typically say that Our trough goal is around 1 to 5.5, so we did say 5.5 is that threshold, although some experts would even lower that to 4 for toxicity. And then the 1 comes from efficacy, so those are both prophylaxis and treatment studies showing that a level of 1 or greater is usually correlated with better, better clinical outcomes. There are some experts that would say a trough greater than two if you're treating invasive aspergillosis with vori, which is a very common indication for voriconazole. But that's largely expert opinion, and there's never been anything really like slam dunk to say a two is better than a one. Vori is very challenging to get just right, has a narrow therapeutic index, and, and patients have quite variable levels. So we went with one to 5.5 as the final answer.
0: All right. Well, thank you. So I guess the next question is, I get a level of six or I get a concentration of 0.5. And, and Melissa, I anticipate that you get this question often in practices and, and Nathan, you as well. So what do you do? So we, we got a level as recommended. We got it, at you know, around day five and, you know, we're presented with this information. You know, what is, you know, what is your recommendations for dose increases or decreases? You know, how, how aggressive should we be, um, um, given the, the and kinetics of voriconazole?
2: Yeah, so this happens a lot, and I think the answer is it depends. So some people have developed algorithms out there to guide folks, but I kind of have a hard time prescribing a one-size-fits-all approach to these. In our clinical practice, we end up finding that we have quite a significant number of patients that are hypermetabolic, and we have to get really creative. And sometimes we have to dose them every six hours or every eight hours with our boriconazole to get an appropriate level. And so a lot really depends on the patient and what's going on there. So by just saying to increase or decrease the dose by a certain amount or a number of milligrams, it's just not going to work for everyone. So what I try to do is review the patient's profile and look for any kind of interacting drugs or conditions that might be contributing factors, take that into account, and try to decide if we change the dose or we change the interval or we have to do both of these things. And the aggressiveness of my approach will depend on the availability of the rapid turnaround time for levels. At Duke, for example, we do these on site. So I know I can get levels back quickly and readjust as necessary. But in our community hospitals, it often takes several days or even longer to come back. So we have to take that into consideration in our plan and go accordingly. And again, a lot depends on whether this is a prophylaxis scenario or whether it's a treatment of a rip roaring fungal infection. And you really want to make sure if you have a low level that you have drug on board. So they may need a second agent to cover them to get this back. But with VORI, you know, we can be doing this pretty quickly and the half-life isn't that long. So you can get a level pretty quickly after you change a dose and make sure that you're in the appropriate range if it was low. If it's high, you can monitor clinically. You can always hold a dose if you need to. That's the one thing I think people sometimes forget about, that if somebody's super therapeutic, you can hold the dose. You don't have to just decrease the dose and wait several more days to get to where you need to be. You can actually hold a dose and get them back to where you need to be and kind of start over from that point. So those are just some tips and good things to think about. Um, there's also newer Bayesian approaches that people have started to publish on for boriconazole, and I'm really looking forward to trying to adapt these into my clinical practice. Haven't yet done it, but I'm intrigued to see how people are doing that. Nathan, do you have some more thoughts on that?
3: Uh, no, I completely agree. This is going to be specific to the individual patient, what's going on. Uh, I completely agree that a, a one-size-fits-all is not a good approach for voriconazole.
0: So, so no sliding scale insulin approach here for Vori, is that the take home message?
2: I wish it was that easy. You know, we published, we have dosed over 2000 patients with Vori Conosal at Duke and published our experience and I cannot predict what anyone's level is going to be. I mean, that, that tells it all.
0: Agreed. Well, how about itraconazole, Nathan? um, Are you doing uh, a lot of processing of levels of itraconazole at your institution? And um, what do you, you know, based on the committee's agreement, what's the consensus monitoring recommendations for itraconazole? And and again, kind of with VORI, do we have to have this kind of, you know, same approach for dose adjustments as we do with VORIconazole?
3: Yeah, so for itraconazole, uh, I definitely think therapeutic drug monitoring is uh, warranted. Uh, You know, we're a reference lab, and so we're getting levels from institutions across the U.S. And one trend that we typically see is low concentrations of itraconazole. Uh, We typically do not see very high concentrations. And the whole point of the monitoring, I think one of the most important things for therapeutic drug monitoring of intraconazole is to make sure that the patient has enough on board because of all the issues with this bioavailability. You know we have three different formulations now that can be used in the U.S. All are oral. We don't have an IV formulation of intraconazole. Uh, the original oral uh, capsules are horrible. They have very erratic bioavailability. That's improved upon by the oral solution, but then you run into all the gastrointestinal adverse effects of it, and patients basically will stop taking it, and then, of course, they become subtherapeutic, and then you have the uh, new uh, SUBA intraconazole or supra-bioavailable intraconazole, but I don't think there are a lot of institutions, at least in the U.S., are using that right now. So if you're trying to do an intraconazole therapeutic drug monitoring, what we typically recommend is you want a trough of about uh, 0.5 micrograms per mil. And in many of our patients, it sometimes is a struggle to even achieve that. Uh, the caveat with itraconazole is that some labs actually will also report a hydroxy hydroxyitraconazole level. And that's the active metabolite that at least in vitro seems to have the same potency of itraconazole. And so some clinicians and some guidelines recommend taking the itraconazole level, the hydroxy itraconazole level, adding those together to get a bioactive component, but there's really not a lot of good data to support that. So really that 0.5 micrograms per mil, when you look at the literature closely, that's based on the itraconazole component only, uh, and they didn't really report a hydroxy itraconazole level. But just like voriconazole, there are several factors that can influence uh, itraconazole levels: uh, drug-drug interactions, whether, and this is probably the most important thing, whether the patient is taking it correctly based on the formulation. You have to remember some formulations you would take with food, others you take on an empty stomach, uh, and whether or not they're even able to tolerate it. If you do have to make a dosage adjustment, typically it's going to be to increase the dose or at least counsel the patient to take it correctly uh, and then measure it again. But with itraconazole having a longer half-life, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer than you would typically for voriconazole to check the level to see uh, if they have at least reached that uh, 0.5 microgram per mil threshold.
0: All right. Thank you.
2: And I would just chime in there that um, for treatment, we set a minimum of one for a level as well. So it's kind of more in line with the higher MICs that you'll see for molds. So just making a note of that as
3: well. Yeah. And, you know, some clinicians will say, you know, if you get one based on the hydroxy, I'm a little worried of that just because we just don't have good data to support that recommendation.
0: Posaconazole, Aaron, so is this another agent that we should be doing TDM for? And if so, what is the recommended therapeutic range? Does it vary um, from vori and nitriconazole?
1: That's a good question. And I think this is a good one to point out where uh, amongst our panel of authors, which I think are the most amazing fungal people in the world, it was such an awesome group to work with, that we went back and forth on this even amongst ourselves, right? And I think that's important because often we read guidelines or these consensus reviews and go, okay, well, this is it. This is what I have to do. And medicine is just simply not like that, especially when you get into things like treatment of weird invasive mold infections. You can get five people and ask them and you're going to get five different answers. So this is when we went back and forth. Should posa be an absolutely always do TDM or should it be a maybe? We landed in kind of this maybe realm, but that's largely because of what we've already said and that the delayed release tablet has better PK than the solution that was formerly used and the solution, which is where a lot of our early clinical data came from. And so again, you have to be really careful when you read these TDM type data or when you're trying to relate an exposure to an outcome because the formulation really does matter for ASELS. It's it's one of the most coolest drug product classes that are that are out there. So the original solution suspension is really bad. If you can get it off your formulary, I I suggest you do that. Um, we don't even have it orderable at UPMC anymore because you have to take it with like 15 grams of fat per dose. You have to take it three times a day. Patients that have invasive fungal infections are not looking to be like eating ice cream and pizza. They're often very sick or very cachectic and just not not getting there. And so it's really, really hard to get therapeutic on the suspension. And if you're on the suspension, you absolutely need to be checking concentrations. They will probably be zero. The advent of the delayed release tablet was a welcome advance in medicine, and patients have much more reliable exposures. So again, some centers, if, if you're giving the DR tabs for prophylaxis, they don't necessarily check levels, although there is a pretty good association between a level of 0.5 and higher with prevention of IFI. And so again, to me, this isn't the time to save money or cut corners. We have a lot of different ways we can trim the fat in, in American healthcare and a lot of things we do that are probably not necessary, but this to me is not one of them. If you know you have some kind of exposure associated with a positive outcome, you're giving a drug for a specific purpose and you have a way to validate that you've achieved that goal, it's one level. That's not the time to not send one test. I I would, I would feel better if it were my mom, if I sent it, and I confirmed that I had indeed achieved that prophylaxis goal. And so prophylaxis, the target is really 0.5. If you dig into the literature, that's what's supported. I was taught 0.7 in residency, and I think a lot of people will say 0.7. That's somewhat of a myth that's been passed down. The data really are for 0.5, but we did end up recommending 0.5 to 0.7 for prophylaxis just because we know that's historical practice has been such. And then for treatment, a 1 to a 1.5, and then most recently, the toxicity threshold has been set at about a 3 to a 3.75. These are really beautiful data out of UCLA. Uh, a couple of years ago, where they, where they associated a level greater than 3.75 with pseudo hyperaldosteronism, which is fascinating because I remember in residency being taught that posaconazole can cause hypokalemia. And that was just something I was supposed to memorize. And we were supplementing potassium on all of our cancer patients. And I was like, why you know and then now oh alas this this as your troughs go higher and higher your exposures get greater we see more of that interplay with with human enzymes and and therefore can cause more toxicity which is really neat i love having a good why behind it so those are our levels for posa and then just to close the loop because nathan made a really excellent point with itraconazole that if you dose adjust or you initiate we're really waiting 7 to 14 days which is a long time like if you're treating some crazy invasive mold, I can tell you right now, your attendings are not going to be pleased when you tell them not to check a level for 10 days. No one wants to wait that long to validate that they're doing the right thing, so to speak. But the half-life of ITRA and Isavuconazole, for that matter, are just so tremendously long that you have to wait to get to steady state. Posa and Vori, not so much. So posaconazole, Conazole, Vori, Conazole, especially if you give a loading dose, if you give a load, you can check a trough on day two, day three if that makes people feel more comfortable. We usually say day 5. Um, if day 5 is a Saturday, do it on day 7. Send it with Monday morning labs. You know, you can be you can be smart and clinical at the same time um I'm all about batching labs if you need to. If you do bring these tests in house, it's it's wise to do them 3 days a week instead of 5 days a week. So sometimes we check on the day in which it falls that it's test day, right? You can be you can be a little practical in this. So
2: that's a that's my summary. Yeah, I think, Erin, I would just further comment on that posaconazole issue. A lot of centers don't necessarily do it routinely on everyone, but we generally have done so at Duke. And I have been surprised sometimes the patients that have low levels, even on a DR tablet. And a lot of that probably comes from the patient population where we're using it more routinely for prophylaxis, that they either have diarrhea that's active or poor absorption states. And so it really depends a little bit again on where you're using it to. Uh, You might be surprised that it's a population where it's not well absorbed. So it's good to have some idea of the experience in your center and in the patient population you're using it in. And that might make you feel a little bit more comfortable.
1: That's a great point, Melissa. I mean, in your hemolegnancy population, when you start POSA, they're neutropenic, they have mucositis. It's, I think, again, if it was my mom, I would absolutely check a level. And then I think I mentioned this earlier, but just to reiterate, it's be- becoming in vogue to crush the DR tablets because you-, you can, in fact, crush them. However, I would say that we've been doing this, and anecdotally, levels are quite low when you're crushing the tabs. So we actually start, if we have to crush the tabs, because patients can't can't take oral normally, but we want to avoid IV posa, which is, you know, fraught with needing a central line and all other kinds of issues. And we're crushing the tabs, we actually start patients on 300 BID crushed, because we're finding that levels are routinely low. Um, And so that's just I don't, that's totally anecdotal. That's just become our practice based on several patients we've done and seen low, low, low. So we're starting at 300 BID and adjusting from there if you're crushing the DR tabs.
2: Yeah, what's really important there is we we've seen mistakes when they go out to school nursing facilities and they're on, say, DR-Tab in-house once a day, and they give them suspension once a day because they don't realize they're not dose equivalent. So again, that's a really important thing for our follow-up is to make sure that the patient's on the right formulation at the right dose.
0: A lot of complexities with posaconazole, to, to say the least. So Nathan, how about fluconazole? Is this a, you know, we use this drug across all our institutions, even those without um, transplant centers. Is, is this, should we be doing TDM for fluconazole as well?
3: No, I don't think so. Uh, this is one of the few azoles where, you know, there really are no data to support therapeutic drug monitoring. It has a great oral bioavailability. It's about equivalent to the IV formulation predictable and linear pharmacokinetics, well tolerated when the doses are pushed. It just does not meet the criteria uh, for therapeutic drug monitoring.
0: How about is, is Should we doing TDM for this one or is, do we apply to the same thoughts with fluconazole?
3: Isenoviconazole is probably going to be in the same boat as fluconazole. Uh, It has great bioavailability. Uh, Once you get a patient therapeutic, they're going to remain therapeutic for a long time because its half-life is 130 hours. Uh, You know, in some of the clinical studies that have been published, um, the majority of patients have reached levels of one microgram per mil that being said, there really is no data to support a concentration relationship with either toxicity or efficacy. And so, you know, based on that, there's probably not a very good need for isaviconazole therapeutic drug monitoring. Uh, that being said, of course, you're going to run into individual situations where you know you might want to check an isaviconazole level. Uh, such as if there is major concerns for drug-drug interactions, since isavuconazole is metabolized by 3A4 and there are a lot of drugs that can inhibit it, that's met- its metabolism. Same thing with regard to using it in feeding tubes. I know Aaron has uh, been a part of a study uh, where they basically reported pretty good levels though um, with isavuconazole uh, when they put it down feeding tubes. Uh, small number of patients though and so there could be situations where it's warranted And critically ill patients and then those, of course, at the extremes of of weight, those that are, you know, kick versus those that are extremely obese. In those situations, you might consider it. But then again, we don't really have, you know, good data to say what that level needs to be. So I think there's more data to come with izabiconazole. But right now, I'm leaning toward not really recommending it, at least routinely for therapeutic drug monitoring.
0: All right. Thank you.
2: I think in the paper, we specified not routine for prophylaxis as a target was not established, but that for treatment, some people might want to go ahead and try to target that because you might want them on the higher side.
1: I agree with that. I think the other piece of it is that if you're on isavuconazole, you've either failed the other azoles, or you have some kind of refractory resistant infection for the most part, or you have some kind of drug interaction, or you have you know, something unique about you since it tends to be more of a last line azel, at least at this point. And so that would be more a reason to kind of nudge, even if there's not necessarily this hard and fast clinical threshold that perhaps you just want to make sure the drug is getting into the patient since it's your end of the line azel.
0: All right. Thank you. Well, excellent job again on this publication, you and your co-authors. I mean, this is a welcome addition to the literature. I would encourage everybody to not only read the article, but to read the supplement material um, because it really provides a concise review of of all the recommendations and support for the different therapeutic ranges and uh, approaches to dose adjustments. So before we conclude this podcast, I just want to see if you had any concluding remarks regarding the triazole antifungal TDM recommendations. Was there anything that we missed? Perhaps future directions, but just want to provide you with an opportunity um, for some concluding remarks.
2: I will say that we are really grateful to the MSG ERC for endorsing the guideline, and that really demonstrates the partnership that we as pharmacists have with our physicians in developing these guidelines, and it's nice that we have their support in this as well and what's interesting is in coming out with this we actually talked about maybe there's some value in us creating a toolkit to help guide people in terms of the dosing and the tables in this manuscript are really meant to help serve as a quick resource so i would definitely refer folks to the tables both in the supplement as well as the main paper and hopefully that'll help folks and i think that future directions will be you know We do pharmacist-based dosing for vancomycin and new glycosides. Why don't we do it for antifungals? You know, there are some hospitals that actually have pharmacist-based protocols for this. So I would recommend that folks really take a look at what they're doing with their levels and see if you want to develop a protocol for your institution.
1: I would tack onto that and say, I think it's worth having a protocol you can copy and paste our tables if you trust us and just use those as a starting place. That's why we wrote this paper to help people with that. I think if you're a high volume center, if you're a major transplant center for either cell transplantation or solid organ transplant, it's worth bringing this in-house if you don't have it already. We found at Wisconsin, it probably saves lives because if you think about it, if it's taking you a week to get an azole level back and it's taking you two weeks to get therapeutic on certain nasals, it, it, it makes a huge difference. And so it's worth having that conversation if you don't have access already. And then My last little thing, so we still use voriconazole for prophylaxis, at least in lung transplantation. And we have, you know, half our attendings are all about checking levels for prophylaxis. Half say it's prophylaxis, so probably fine. I think we've made the point that voriconazole is so variable and you're prophylaxing for a very good reason. These patients are very high risk. So you should confirm that you have some kind of exposure there. So I'm a big fan of vori levels, even if the indication is prophylaxis particularly in
2: lung transplant patients. Nathan, any last thoughts from the lab?
3: Uh, You you know, not really from the lab, uh, but just kind of want to reiterate something you said at the beginning, Melissa, Um, you know, there's been some really good work coming out of uh, the CDC recently uh, and some of the articles they've written about the uh, use of uh, antifungal therapeutic drug monitoring, you know, Really good work, and it kind of shows a partnership not only of pharmacists with MSGERC but also with uh, the CDC uh, in really trying to promote uh, these types of tests which can be beneficial used correctly.
2: Well, you're not going to say it, but I will. Um, kind of your lab being in existence, this is one thing they kind of always kept in my back pocket here. There's varying. Um you know proficiency of laboratories in their drug concentration monitoring and the services that they provide. And fungus testing lab is great. And it's great to have that as a resource. So if there's a hospital looking for a place to send their levels and they don't have something set up or what they have set up leads to too much of a lag time, I would personally recommend that they consider fungus testing lab.
0: Thank you very much. I appreciate that. All right. I would like to thank all our panelists again for their time and coming forth with this publication. I appreciate everybody listening in, and this will conclude our podcast for today. Thank you.